0: and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Ben, how are you? Hi, Tom. I'm very well. Yourself? I'm doing very well. I picked up the paper this morning, uh, and uh, as is is usual, just to see if there's anything interesting to uh, talk about today, and I saw that the Brecon Beacons is going to be renamed. Apparently, Beacon is too carbony, and therefore is in itself as a name, against climate change, which... We knew, didn't we, from April the first that the, that the countryside is racist. So now the countryside is anti-climate change. I mean, who knew? So the, the, the countryside is guilty
1: of destroying the environment. Is that what the, the countryside have, have is guilty so? of? A lot. <laughs> so it's it's fire, isn't it? It's it's fire that I think national, the National Trust, who manage uh, the Brecon Beacons have objected to and they're they're dropping the English name. They're going to use the Welsh name, which we are not going to attempt to pronounce because we do not want to commit a hate crime and be convicted for it. Um, but (laughs) yes, so it's, 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 it's racist and it's causing climate change. Um, and that's just to start with, I'm afraid we have a packed, packed agenda of, of free speech news as always, don't we? Mm. Um, but we do have a bit of good news. Um, something that people might find helpful, which is from a company called Consumer Research. Um, and this is a a, a new uh, alert. You can get a woke alert for companies uh, that are doing the sort of thing the National Trust have done, renaming the and Beacons. Um, and so if you feel the need to boycott a company that is, for instance, rewriting your favourite children's books, uh, you will be able to do that.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great bit of good news and you know i think that we need more of those initiatives to show us where where silly things are happening being put in place by silly bureaucrats um but our listeners you know ladies and gentlemen boys and girls oh i'm sorry we're not allowed to say that either now are we ben after a teacher got in trouble for saying good morning girls so i don't know how we refer to our listeners but uh, we might carry on saying ladies and gentlemen i think
1: we, we we could come up with a gender-neutral coinage if anybody feels terribly offended. Yeah, uh, I apologise
0: for any offence I might have caused by saying "ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls."
1: Well, the thing that has wound people up, it's wound me up, it's wound you up, Tom. I think it it's <laughs> irritated everybody I've spoken to about this beyond measure. Is the rewriting, the editing of PG Woodhouse? And this is the frankly horrifying news that Penguin Random House uh, have, well, they've done two things. They've added a disclaimer saying, please be aware that this book was published in the 1930s and contains language, themes, and characterizations, which you may find outdated. And therefore in the present edition, we have sought to edit minimally. They say words that we regard as unacceptable to present day readers. So they've gone through, I think two novels so far that have been identified. Um, and begun this process of tampering with the text. And this is not... I mean, people got very cross about Ian Fleming, about Roald Dahl, and so on. Uh, with respect to Ian Fleming, he's not P.G. Woodhouse. You're interfering now with one of the top, top, top writers in the canon mm. without any sense of embarrassment at, at having done so. Mm. Are, are you livid, Tom?
0: I am absolutely incandescent, I think. I'm trying to think of a good P.G. Woodhouse phrase that I might be able to use because I remember stumbling across the books. Obviously, I think I'd already seen the uh, uh, Fry and Laurie version on the television before I, I read my first P.G. Woodhouse. But when I stumbled across the books, I was astonished at the way he could turn phrases, he could turn... Uh, little ridiculous situations on their head with just a clever use of a few phrases, a few words and would have you crying with laughter. I I think on one occasion I happened to be around um, sitting around a hotel pool and I, my friends were embarrassed for me. (laughs) They they suggested I go, I go and read the book indoors because I kept bursting out in laughter. You cannot play with PG Woodhouse. You don't have no one should feel they have the right to play with someone who could create that and dance with the English language in the way that Woodhouse did.
1: And the Penguin Random House, they just don't they they seem to have absolutely no sensitivity whatsoever
0: Mm.
1: to the right of an author to have their work protected after their death. And the fact that they might they might own something, they might own the copyright to work, but they have absolutely no moral right to begin tampering with it the the strange thing for me and i you laugh at me tom when we finish broadcasting because i always manage to shoehorn in some obscure historical reference but i i've been listening to another podcast about uh, about byzantine history on saturday and uh th- there was a, a brief discussion about uh, zealots in the early christian communities wanting to destroy uh non-biblical Classical works, and that there was a debate about this, and 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 uh, most people felt that that should not be done. But nonetheless, there were some Zagats who who felt that these works had absolutely no worth whatsoever. And then I open my newspaper <laughs> and see that that here we are, fourteen hundred years later, and exactly the same debates are going yeah. on, um, because because this is deemed to be in Penguin's word unacceptable to to a modern day audience. So. I think there's something comforting in the fact that we've gone through these periods of of zealotry um, and and of purging of literature and art and have um, have emerged from them. But it it obviously is just it it just seems to be innate to human societies that every every so often there are groups of people. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's a group of people with a lot of cultural power who just want to to purge things that don't accord with their own sensibility
0: yeah it is comforting to know that we pass through these periods that there has never been a time of um, purging or a time of censorship that hasn't ultimately come to an end but it comes at a cost because i think that often these these periods of time last far longer than we might <laughs> first certainly than we want them to but also than perhaps we expect them to if you live through a time of cultural upheaval it, it feels like a very, very long time. Instead of being ten years, it's twenty years. Instead of being twenty years, it's fifty years, or, or whatever. And so you you have to learn to live with it. Um, but this 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 is part of pushing a narrative, isn't it? Again, we've seen it with these these books, uh, and 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 it's the same. Seems to be the same same narrative. And we need we need and we'll come on to this in the next item, actually. But we need to realize that there are more there's more than one way of looking at the world. Um, and, and that's what depresses me about the, this book censorship.
1: I, I have this theory that Tom, you and I were just speaking about a moment ago, that I've I've purloined and adapted from Ian Kershaw. Um that that there is not actually a demand for P. G. Woodhouse or Rald Dahl or Ian Fleming or the Breck and Beacons to be renamed, for for any of these things to happen. There isn't actually a a sizable body of opinion that's calling for these things to take place. But if you're running the National Trust, if you are a top executive at a publishing company, you are working towards the woke. You're anticipating what the demands of social justice are going to be. You're working towards this overarching programme that's captured every institution from the civil service to the universities to the police. And you're trying to further it's objectives. You've stopped serving your customers or the taxpayer and you're serving only this ideological agenda, what we call woke. Um, and I think this is a this is a textbook example um, of that. And we long for an episode, don't we, where we're not having to talk about classic text being rewritten because it's hard to see what the end point is if 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 you're happy to tamper with with
0: woodhouse where do you stop and i'm sorry to say ben but this uh this leads us on quite nicely to the uh, uh the fact that the the narrative we have talked about yes we've talked about it on books but we've also now seen it and it's 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 not a new thing for our listeners i'm sure uh hitting the theater hitting the stage uh, and other areas of the art and arts. And we did see um, in the last week Martin McDon- McDonough, who is the director of In Bruges, amongst other, other great films. Uh, and also um, a very interesting play that's, that's coming up again called The Pillow Man. That's going to be in London in the next couple of months. Uh, it's, a, it's about totalitarianism, actually, ironically enough. But he's, he's been saying that the theatres have been rejecting his plays because he won't agree to change their language and he describes the situation as a major problem he says that theaters are actually becoming quite a dangerous place for writers and in yeah, talking about who's where's this coming from he he thinks that some of it's clearly coming from those in authority you know governments are becoming increasingly more scared of dissenting voices Um, But what I find curious is that this book, The Pillow Man, which I I would like to go and see, it's coming up in in June, or this play, The Pillow Man, is all about um, art, keeping art alive, keeping your writing alive after you die and not letting people change it, Um, because he's also going to try and change his uh, will, I think, or or at least find a form of words which will stop anyone from doing the sort of thing that's happened to Roald Dahl, the sort of thing that's happened to P.G. Woodhouse, and protect his work from the censor's pen. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 hitting, it's hitting the theatres now, the plays and the venues who are, who are, who are, who are knocking plays off and not letting, not letting writers say what they need to say. And I think that, you know, Ben, I, I went back to... <laughs> I actually went back to an article I found from 1981. Uh, it always makes me think of the Eastern Bloc, I went back and had a look at uh, what censorship w- was like in Poland for people who were putting on plays, for people who were putting on pieces in the theatre, and I found it really quite moving um, because that was very obvious censorship. But even when censorship was obvious, um, two little quotes from that uh, that article struck me quite profoundly. The first, the first was that because they were writing in metaphor so much to avoid the censor, they themselves as playwrights reached a point where they couldn't work out where where their own self-censorship ended and where the censorship of the state began. And and the second thing, which is kind of coming up against this idea of homogenization, um, it was very close, obviously, to the end of the world, World War II. And one of the quotes in that article says that You know, in World War II, there was a loss of individualism and independence. The fascists, i.e. the Nazis, dressed people in the same clothes and made numbers of them. And if our civilization shows one model as being suitable for everyone, it too becomes totalitarian. And so I found it really, going back that far, Ben, I found it really moving to see how people were fighting censorship and the sorts of problems they were grappling with at the time. It it reminds
1: me a lot of the idea... um... That following the Satanic Verses episode, that the West has internalised the fatwa and internalised the idea that making a cartoon of Muhammad or um, writing about him in an unflattering way is inherently problematic to use that word and that it's something that ought not to be done or something that if you do it you're basically inviting trouble mm. and shouldn't really be uh, responded to with very much sympathy and i, I think that idea i'm afraid has been internalized to a, to a great extent mm. but speaking of, um, uh, of 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 the the other side of the iron curtain i think one concept that i find very current is the idea of preference falsification the idea that if you're living under the soviet system in Eastern Europe, uh, in East Germany, and so on, that that you pretend that this system is what you want. yeah. Um, and you're in a group and a society of people who are all pretending that this system is what we want. And I think when you're looking at, say, theatre managers or, or publishing staff or whatever, if you think that everybody else wants the system that is currently in place you are also going to pretend to want it, which then, of course, creates the impression of uniformity, of complete ideological conformity um, and consent. Um, And what you see when the wall comes down is the complete collapse, of course, of that preference falsification. And so I'm longing for a Berlin Wall moment uh, in the arts, in publishing, in theatres, where people finally start to say, well, actually, no, this isn't what I want. I don't believe this. You're welcome to. I happen not to. And I think as soon as that impression, I suspect a false impression of conformity uh, is broken, I think the whole edifice could collapse quite quickly. But it requires people to speak out calmly,
0: politely, reasonably, but it does require people to speak out. But what I think, I, I think Ben, on that is that the arts, the theatre, is so fundamental to making that happen. Uh, you know, when you go to see something in, in, in the theatre, you're very much in the now and it takes you away, in, you know, from your everyday worries, and, and raises your eyes at the same time to, to sort of some of the bigger narratives, and and tr- and speaks at its best. It speaks a deep truth to you, and the, and so this is what worries me about what's happening in, in the world of theatre and plays. But that's that's where people wake up. That that's part of how people properly wake up and see what's really going on around them. And so you know, I think that that's another element that we're looking for that new dawn. I'm, I expect a lot of that may well come from the creative industry uh, and from uh, the theatres and 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 you know, authors and writers that we've been talking about. I just think about Shakespeare, Ben. You know, look at how Shakespeare has been used in so many parts of the world in so many regimes. Richard the has been used to taunt Eastern European dictators. You know, a, a, a staging of Othello in in apartheid South Africa. Cause all sorts of trouble. I think A Midsummer Night's Dream has caused problems in Turkey and Julius Caesar's caused problems in Brazil. I mean, you can go through all of his plays and you see the trouble that William Shakespeare has caused for whether it's totalitarian societies uh, proper or whether it's totalitarian societies that we, you know, things like wokeism and that sort of thing. Uh, Shakespeare has blown that apart. So, So art has power. Art has real power to make a difference here, I think. One of the things I wonder um, is
1: whether once an industry or a sector of the arts world is just perceived to be lost and captured, if people just walk away from it entirely. And I think there's an element of that with novels. And I think because that has become so overwhelmingly the domain of female writers, it seems from the market data that's available that men have basically stopped reading novels. And certainly, from my own experience, whatever that's worth, I I can't remember reading a novel written in the last ten or fifteen years. So I think theatre going might just be something that 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 stops for a large segment of the population because you just you, you're not interested in in the types of plays that can get through the firewalls of the of the captured creative process which i think is a great pity
0: or you're so I, I certainly have become very suspicious of of the theater very suspicious of novels that are recent thinking okay i'll give it a go but is it just going to depress me um i i, I just one little point just to make you laugh ben i i did uh, we, we were talking about trigger warnings uh i didn't mm. realize this i well I, I should have remembered it but the very first trigger warning i think is in midsummer night's dream when in in the last scene act act three um uh bottom i think they're worrying they're going to do a play they're going to stage a play and they're worrying that there's going to be a sword and there's going to be a lion and that this is going (laughs) to terrify the women who are going to think there's actually someone being killed by a sword or there's actually a lion on stage and so um, they come up with the idea of a little prologue before the play where they explain to the ladies that it's not a real lion, the lion is an actor, and they explain to the ladies that no <laughs> one's actually dying on stage. And I thought, this is the first trigger warning. But, of course, what Shakespeare doing, he's completely laughing at the idea of a trigger warning, how absurd it is. So, you know, all of these things that we talk about today, they've been around, and the the, the greater folks the best of the best have thought this all through it's astonishing when you see how, how rich shakespeare in particular is
1: there's nothing new understand. the sun. I, i've i've learned something i've learned something very interesting tom i had no idea
0: that well very I, interesting it, indeed it I, surprised me it surprised me anyway we should we should move on shouldn't we to our next our next area
1: well we do we have some good news after uh, after a few grumbles there we do have some very good news about something called the worker protection bill uh which sounds like a a perfectly pleasant, reasonable, nice, soft, cuddly piece of legislation that could only do good things uh, and, of course, in fact, is anything but. So this is a piece of legislation uh, that has only really received any scrutiny in the last couple of weeks. It was proposed by a Liberal Democrat MP and then snuck its way through Parliament. Uh, It was a private member's bill, so it was debated on a Friday uh, where most MPs are back in their constituencies. So it's been very quietly making quite rapid progress. And then it's been scrutinised now because in large part the FSU has been uh, sounding the alarm about this behind the scenes um, and also the Telegraph had reported on it a couple of weekends ago um, about the huge harm this piece of legislation would do to free speech if enacted. So it would extend employers' liability for harassment to third parties. And the meaning of that in practical terms is if you are a pub landlord and you have a member of staff who perceives that they have been harassed, and we're not talking here just about sexual harassment, we're talking about harassment in the legal sense under the Equality Act. So if they they feel they've been harassed because they've heard two women discussing uh, their gender critical views, the fact they don't believe with trans ideology, the bar staff who's heard that, who feels they've been harassed, who feels offended, can then sue their employer for not taking reasonable steps to have prevented that conversation from taking place in their pub. So that's just one example. The secondary consequences of this would ripple throughout society. The the harm to free speech, I think, could not really be... um, I mean, it couldn't be captured neatly. The harms are so profound um, the damage it, it, it would do would be so great. Anyway, we've been warning about this. We've been speaking to MPs and peers about this, um, and it has been uh, criticised by many members of the House of Lords now, uh, Lord Strath, um uh, Lord Frost, Lord Hannan, Lord, Lord Moylan, Lord Jackson, the Earl of Leicester. There has been a backlash against this piece of legislation now. And the good news is that the government um, looks now to be abandoning the bill. So what's going to happen now is that it's going to be uh, amended quite heavily. Our hope then is there will not be time for all of the amendments to be debated and the legislation will run out of time um, and will never make it to the statute. But um, Tom, it's just horrifying, isn't it?
0: It it really is, and I think um, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but I think the reason that we managed to get the government finally to drop it was because there was a lot of publicity about about two weeks ago. It hit the newspapers, it hit it hit some of the the, the news cycles, and we'd been working a lot in the background just to raise this with all with all those individuals, um, particularly at that time in the House of Lords where the where the bill was. And um, I read a piece that said many in the government were surprised, very surprised, at the backlash from the Conservative MPs in the Commons. Um, you know, which is a testament to the uh, power and the effect of and, and and the influence of the Free Speech Union. I think, and of all our members and all our listeners who are writing in and, and asking for our, our government to be held to account on this and the crazy side effect that this would have on free speech. So I, I really think it is important that we celebrate this. And, and as, as you say, Ben, I think that um, effectively the government's just going to kind of drop it when it comes back to the commons. That's, that's kind of where it's got to after this huge backlash against it. All at the same time that Rishi Sunak was saying, we're, we're, we're not going to be woke, this was about to, this was about to come through so yeah it it would have been it would have been awful i mean the, the implications and the ramifications um don't bear thinking about that we just thought about the ones we could think of it's the ones we couldn't think of <laughs> yeah. you know what they would do to us so
1: a close run thing uh, and hopefully we'll have further updates about in the next yeah. about that in the next couple of weeks and be able to confirm that the legislation is dead and sticking with the theme of current legislation this week, uh, Tom, you want to talks about northern Ireland
0: yeah um I think this is this is really important um uh, in it 's quite a long backstory and it concerns Northern Ireland back in two thousand and nineteen the Northern Irish Justice Department commissioned a judge Judge Marinen, to carry out a review of hate crime legislation, and that review was published in December two thousand and twenty with the department, uh, the Justice Department immediately accepting 22 of the, of the, ju- of the judges' uh, 34 recommendations, which included applying a statutory aggravation hate crime model, plans to make sectarian prejudice a hate crime, to include gen- transgender ideology as a protected characteristic, and also to allow for the legislation to be framed in such a way that more groups could be added to that list of protected uh, characteristics in the future. We, 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 at the time, the Free Speech Union uh, got involved, and we, we've written a briefing, actually. It's on our website, well worth a look. It was written in July 2022. Um, and we, we, took, we did some independent polling at the time of publishing that uh, with Lucid Talk. Uh, and as a result of that, we found that only 12% of respondents felt that the government in Northern Ireland was doing a good job protecting free speech so that was one of the main headlines from our own look into this in july 22 but why are we talking about this today well the the government in northern ireland or rather not the government the um the justice department the issues that there isn't actually a government sitting in stormont but all of this is happening there's been a consultation um and uh, the Government has or the, the the Justice Department has now come back and said what they're going to do as a result of that consultation, and it seems they're just going to press on with most of what the um uh what the Justice was recommending, even though in the consultation most of the individual responses were against uh, some of these rather chilling effects on on free speech so there's a real concern here that even when there's no government sitting in Stormont we're seeing Uh, free speech uh, being at risk of being curtailed with with this new piece of legislation. So it is very concerning, isn't it, Ben? Just, Just to be absolutely clear about this, we have a situation where there is no government. Part of the
1: country is being run by civil servants with no democratic input, oversight, accountability whatsoever. And they are proposing a piece of legislation that is or would be incredibly censorious and which is based on scotland's hate crime and public order act uh, uh, which and that is a piece of legislation that is so bad so poorly drafted that it has been on the books i think for two years or or something like that and it hasn't come into force because the police are saying well we, we don't have the resources to to enforce this we have. there's no way in which we we could comply with this legislation were it to come into effect so it it's an it, it, i mean it doesn't it doesn't bear thinking about does it and and the if you if you're not in northern Ireland and you're listening to this, the reason you should care about it is because if we were in a situation where Scotland and Northern Ireland had a piece of legislation like this, a new hate crime bill. The pressure on England and Wales to follow suit, I think, would become immense, and of course, that is what the uh, the Law Commission has proposed, isn't it? That yeah. England and Wales follow suit.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 Ben, it will be. You know, that would be a potential future battle that we at the Free Speech Union would would have to fight. So we really need to fight this legislation in Northern Ireland before it it sweeps into England as well. Um, but of course, in Northern Ireland as well. The, 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 it's such a sensitive issue, and it feels to me that there needs to be real care around the democratic process in Northern Ireland, especially with you know the, the risk of fanning fanning flames of sectarian division um, that are specific to Northern Ireland. We have to you know we have to be so careful about how we apply democracy in Northern Ireland, and the fact that this is being consulted on. We get, the, we get the response to the consultation, and it seems like, oh, we're just going to kind of carry on and ignore the individuals and go along with some of the other organizations, the sort of the, the pressure group organizations. That is really concerning, and I think that um, uh, we're going to keep a very close eye on this, and we're going to continue to fight it hard. Uh, to make sure that we are listened to and that people responding to the consultation, because it's now going into phase two of the consultation, we need to be listened to so that free speech and free expression are protected. And we're going to stay with the theme of uh, policing with the news that I
1: think many will have seen uh, of Essex Police sending a team of five officers to a family-owned pub, the White Hart Inn, to seize a collection of gollywog dolls. Now, we've been speaking a couple of weeks ago about a report the Free Speech Union had commissioned into police training on freedom of speech or the lack of training on freedom of speech. And one of the themes that emerged from this was that the police are doing huge amounts of uh, various types of EDI training, some of it pretty out there, some of it focusing bizarrely on alpacas. (laughs) And here we have the, the police in essex deciding that their their priority is, is to send five officers to this pub to arrest gollywog dolls it, it's just completely disproportionate isn't it when when serious crimes uh, i just see, it seems to be well effectively decriminalized because police just don't have the resources or the time or the inclination to respond
0: to them well it comes exactly back to that um report Ben, that Carrie of the Free Speech Union wrote, which is this this lack of balance between the police um, uh, policing our streets and the police pleading our, policing our tweets. In effect, this training that is given to the police officers on freedom of expression is really pretty minor, whereas the training that's given on EDI, DEI, DIE, whatever you want to call it, is is pretty extensive. And in fact, runs, I think, the phrase that was used like a golden thread through all of our training material. is diversity, equity and inclusion or diversity, equality and inclusion. And yet freedom of expression doesn't. And I think this this event in Essex just really illustrates that there were five police officers sent to arrest some dolls um i mean apparently the dolls came quietly i i, I was i it, there were there were elements of this that, that i had to laugh about the dolls came quietly and the dolls are assisting police with their inquiries it's crazy absolutely
1: man. ludicrous absolutely ludicrous
0: um the, the, one of
1: the things i've been wondering about with all of these uh stories about various unpalatable WhatsApp conversations or whatever that have been taking place between police officers and I think in the fire service as well and the various reports that have been investigating the internal culture in the emergency services. Um, I wonder if that pressure is now pushing the police into, it's changing how they view, how how they interact with the public, how they view the right to free speech because the internal culture in the police is being changed very dramatically, particularly in the Met Police, because there are so many concerns about misogyny, the exchanging of, uh, you know, we've all seen these reports, pretty, pretty unpalatable, very unpleasant material. Um, and I wonder that th- that can't not but change how the police view freedom of speech. Mm. And I wonder how that's that's filtering filtering through. And and it seems to me that that they are failing to strike the balance. I mean, it should be possible for the police to defend the right of freedom of speech for the public, and also change their internal culture so that that women particularly feel comfortable approaching police officers for help, if they need to. Um, It it surely cannot be impossible to do both of those things.
0: So I think, what are you saying, Ben, there, you feel there's almost a gulf opening up, sort of an us and a them, because the police themselves are under so much pressure, that instead of Coming to get in, together in a sense and being a a police force um, that comes out of as it's out of the citizenry and in some ways is a sort of an arm of us as much as anything else. That there's a gulf that's opened up and therefore into that is coming this this conflict.
1: I think that's I think that's part of it certainly. And I think the police's approach to freedom of speech seems to be that it is a problem to be managed rather than a fundamental non-negotiable right of every british subject to enjoy right and that seems to that seems to animate their whole approach to free speech and then when you have that plus the internal cultural change that the police are going through post sarah everett's murder and all the rest of it um i think that's creating it's accelerating the idea that free speech is
0: a problem, it's a problem as I said, to be manage. managed. Well, and, and there was the article. Yeah. There's been an article in the Telegraph over the weekend as well, which really highlights exactly what you're saying, Ben. Whereby it seems that the uh, the code of practice on non-crime hate incidents that the Home Secretary has published. Now, um, what's happened is that the College of Policing has come up with its own sort of operational manual, and you do a sort of compare and contrast against the two, and all the really um, sharp examples that are in the the home office guide are missing or adapted to sort of be watered, the, the sort of free speech element to be watered down or to be flipped round in the College of Policing's guidance. So, you know, it seems that whatever we do from terms of the government saying we mean it, we want freedom of expression, we want the police to do free, freedom of speech better the the quango the college of policing in the middle uh when it comes to the operational implications of this is is also kind of blocking it or doing their best to 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 drag their feet like a naughty child being taken to bed you know <laughs> i think this is this is one of my
1: frustrations and i think this is something that will resonate my frustrations with modern britain is that no matter what political party you vote for which government you elect the the quangos that make the decision to rename the Brecon beacons or, or mangle the home secretary's instruction that the police focus on protecting free speech rather than suppressing it. Right. That, Mm. that there's no, there's no feedback mechanism against these things that it it feels almost like there's, there's nothing you can do. It's not quite like that. Um, And the free speech union is very busy helping among others, dissenters at, those organizations to try and fight back to change the culture internally so it's not completely hopeless but i think there is a there is a profound sense of of a lack of democratic accountability because the college of policing has interposed itself between what the government is saying and what the vast majority of the public want from the police yeah and it's interfering with that and it's saying no do this instead yeah Yeah. and i think that's a very very difficult and I think in the long term, an unsustainable position for a democracy to be in where so many aspects of of government and state power are devolved to unelected figures, unelected quangos and organisations that most people have never heard of.
0: Yeah, and, and it, it very much comes down to you back to what I think uh, we mentioned earlier on. Uh, with the sort of the new elite and and this this gulf between sort of us the great unwashed and and this new elite and the way they world. I just the say world. that
1: theme of the of the new elite, of course, is is what Matt Professor Matt Goodwin's book is all about. Um, that came out a couple of weeks ago, um, and he's been monstered on Twitter for his thesis that there is a a class of university educated, hyper liberal, out of touch people in charge of these these quangos and government departments and so on. Um, mm. And he has really been hounded for making the argument. Uh, so it'd be great to speak to him at some point about that. I think that that is a, a theory that that has a lot of um, explanatory power for the problems that, that we see at the Free Speech Union when we're helping people who are really up against it in yeah. the civil service or a university or wherever, because they have a view that you know let's be clear most people would not find controversial yeah but in that institution is just beyond the pale yeah
0: yeah yeah no i think i think that's exactly it and it would be lovely we'd be we we are going now into that phase i think aren't we ben we're going to try and get more guests onto onto this podcast and get some other voices on it and and we're going to get some of our staff fellow staff members coming along uh, and also external guests. And, and I think Matt Goodwin would be a fantastic guest to come along because, as you say, his, his theories around the new elite are well worth delving into. Whether you agree with them or not, they, they provide some insight into what's happening around us at the moment um, and they give us an interesting perspective on it.
1: I read, before we go, I, there's a quote I wanted to share from the writer Paul Kingsnorth. And he said, There is a throne at the heart of every culture, And whoever sits on it will be the force you take your instruction from. And he has written at great length, fascinating, fascinating writer, um, about the way in which the Christian God has been removed from that now empty throne um, and the attempts throughout the 20th and the 21st centuries to install abstract concepts in his place. Um, and if our listeners are at all representative of the British public, most people listening to this will not be religious, but nonetheless I, th- I think there is a sense of the great harms that emerge from trying to set up an abstract ideal as the overriding principle of a civilization. and we see it in nonsensical ways like the and Beacons being renamed, <laughs> and we see it in harmful ways like how it's was washed through the police, um, but it, it, I think at the moment woke is sat very happily very comfortably filling that throne and if you disagree mm-hmm. with its tenets, you can be in a lot of trouble and we at the free speech Union will we'll help you um
0: yeah there's always something on the throne ben there's always something on the throne um, yeah. and you want it to be yeah. you want it to be something that's going to make society a better place and i'm not sure woke's going to do that sadly no.
1: if you've enjoyed this podcast Please share it with a friend. We've had some wonderful feedback and we have listeners all over the world. And please join the Free Speech Union. Uh, You can join from £2.49 a month. That's the rate of our student membership. And we help people in all walks of life. So lots of the university cancellations and no platformings, those stories capture headlines. But actually the vast majority of our work pertains to employment disputes where people are in trouble for saying something at work or indeed outside of work that their employer doesn't like Um, and i think about one fifth of our cases are university cases as well so we have a very experienced case and legal team who are helping people every day with situations where their free speech rights are being interfered with or suppressed or where they're being investigated or have been sacked because of their views so if you feel that that you would like that support should you need it you can join or if you simply think perhaps you're retired and you would like to help us provide that support to people who are working or who are students now you can sign up on our website and thank you for listening thank you for listening bye bye